0: Father, your word has instructed us that your name is a strong tower and the righteous run to it and are safe. Your name, everything that you are, all that you are and all that you will be to your people, all that you have established from eternity past taking place according to your perfect decree in the fullness of time is our refuge, is our hope, and is our stay. We repent this day for placing hope, and assurance, or encouragement or happiness, in anything short of that which you alone can supply. Everything else is a cheap imitation. Everything else perishes with using. Everything else this material realm can boast, Lord, moth and rust and thieves and fire can all destroy over time and sometimes in a moment. But the grass that withers and the flowers that fade, they testify to a creator who is stronger, who is more powerful, more beautiful, and enduring still. And his word lasts forever. Your word will yet remain. And so now as we turn to your word, to see, Lord, that which holds out hope for us, I pray that our hearts would be stirred and quickened and moved, that we would be freshly, Lord, animated in our affections to appreciate the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we see the beauty of how you have written your self-revelation across the pages of history in your recorded word, I pray that we would feel overwhelmed at the joy and with gratitude at the great and precious gift of salvation that has been secured for us in Christ our Lord. And as your word is proclaimed, if there are any... Among the lost who are in the hearing of the proclamation of your authoritative word, I pray that they would confess their sins, place faith in Jesus Christ, the only Messiah, and that they would find in you sufficient hope in your blood, which was shed for them. We thank you, God, for these truths. We thank you for this time. May your spirit use this time and may you be glorified through the equipping of your people in the proclamation of your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning we turn to the scriptures in Genesis chapter 12. Turn there with me in your Bible if you would. The title of this morning's message is I was debating two. The first, Abram versus Babel. Abram, of course, the name of Abraham before it was changed later on in the record. And Genesis 12 1, his name is Abram as we meet him today in the record. There is a sharp contrast drawn between the account of the call of Abraham and the account of the building of the Tower of Babel, which we have studied in recent weeks. An alternate title could be covenant calling, the covenant calling of Abraham from his surrounding region, uh, from his familiar surroundings, to cities representing as much Ur and Haran, unto his uh, duty, his vocation, his calling, his purpose in the Lord to go forth to a country as yet unknown to him. The aim of this morning's message is to glorify God by setting his gospel call against the backdrop of man's vain ambitions. When we see the gospel call of Abraham against the backdrop of man's vain ambitions typified in the Tower of Babel, enterprise, we can see God glorified all the more. And so that will be the context of of today's message. Out of reverence and as you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word today? We begin in Genesis 12 verse 1. Let's read through verse 9. Listen as the infallible word of the Lord is proclaimed in your hearing today. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Verse 7. Verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The significance of this moment we have just read of, Genesis 12, 1 through 9, the significance of this moment in covenant or redemptive history cannot be overstated. The narrative context reflects as much even in the structure of the book of Genesis, not to mention the rest of the, entire, of the entire Bible. I want you to notice something that was brought to my attention in one of my study Bibles. The first 11 chapters of Genesis have been dedicated to chronicle many centuries and many generations. From Adam all the way through Abram, we have followed loosely the elect line of Seth, pausing only at brief moments for a significant sun to be highlighted. The elect line of Seth through to Noah, for instance. And then following him, the elect line of Shem through to our point in the text today, Abram. But there are still 39 chapters remaining in the book of Genesis, 50 in total. That is, 11 of them are dedicated to many, many generations and 11 of them are dedicated to many centuries. Yet the remaining 39 will now be dedicated to recording the events spanning just four generations. Can anyone tell me who Abraham's son was? Who was Abraham's son, young people? And who was Jacob's son of promise? I'm sorry, Isaac's son of promise. I kind of Freudian slipped it there. Jacob. So you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are three generations. And then we have a fourth, if you will, in the sons of Jacob. Can anyone name a son or two of Jacob? Uh, Joseph is correct. Esau is Jacob's twin brother. So we have four generations that span 39 chapters, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and his brothers who make up the 12 tribes of Israel. Why such weight given to these four generations, whereas the previous ones, many, many, have been covered relatively quickly? This is because, as I introduce this message saying, the redemptive history of this moment that we have just read of in our text cannot be overstated. It is extremely significant, and hence the spotlight of God's special revelation is trained on Abram and tuned to be Abraham and his successive generations for the remainder of the first book of the Bible this record begins at the calling of Abram from among the post-Babel dispersed nations. So you remember where we are in the account of history. Babel, The Tower of Babel has been built, and then the people have been judged, dispersed, their languages confused. And then we have the record of 10, I believe, generations in between Babel, until we get to Terah, who is the father of, yes, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So here we have the next moment highlighted. Abram and his call. And so the record begins at the calling of Abram from among the post-Babel dispersed nations. And here we find major themes are at play at this juncture, which will blossom through all of scripture. And perhaps a future message, maybe even next week, will focus on some of those major theological themes that we begin to see highlighted, illustrated in Abraham's call. There's a lot of ground to cover here. And not enough time in one message to do it. So leaving that for a later date. Uh, the pur- for the purposes of our study today, let's consider the call of Abraham, separated by genealogy, from the narrative of the city of Babel. So we have the city of Babel, this uh, genealogy in between, and then we have the call of Abraham. This provides for us a telling juxtaposition. The city of man building project of Babel in juxtaposition with the calling of Abraham is instructive indeed. Abraham, he leaves, he's as a patriarch, leaves his familiar surroundings and journeys to a place in faith, the polar opposite in many ways of the project of Babel. Abraham, Abram, was to be a sojourner with his hope set on a city whose designer, and builder was God. We find this later in the text of Scripture in Hebrews 11. So here we have Babel versus Abram. Abram versus Babel. The legacy of Seth set in contrast to the legacy of Ham. Uh, What was the legacy of Ham? It's Ham and the, young people? City City builders. What is the legacy of Seth? It's Seth and the? Seth and the? Significant sons. We have the legacy of Ham, represented in Babel, city builders, set against or contrasted with the legacy of Seth, significant sons. With that introduction, let me give you a heading. The covenant calling of Abram is marked by three things in our text today. Number one, God's word of command in Genesis 12 verse 1. Number two, his covenant call is marked by God's word of command of promise in verses two and three. And number three, the covenant calling of Abraham or Abram is marked by an appointed pilgrimage. So this is a foreordained, it's a planned journey pilgrimage, which is a journey of spiritual significance that God has laid out for his servant who he has called Abram. God's word of command, God's word of promise, an appointed pilgrimage. Covenant calling of Abraham is marked by these. Consider verse 1, God's word of command. Now the Lord said to Abram, go. The first command is one word in summary, go. But it's going from a place to another. Listen, from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Here in God's word of command, we have these three things to consider. First, the calling of one man namely Abram, and of course, many will be incorporated through Abram that will be affected by this call, but for the purposes of the record, it is Abram, this individual who is called out among the nations for a significant purpose, the calling of one man. Secondly, he's called from somewhere. He's called from a country, kindred, and house. And and thirdly, he's called to somewhere, an as of yet undisclosed place. God does not tell Abraham before he commands him to march where he will be going. This is God's word of command. Notice, first of all, first of all, that this is much like the gospel proclamation in New Testament terms. God's word in the gospel comes first by way of command. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus enters his ministry, and what does he do? He issues a word of command, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Scholars through history have noted a certain order of things in the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel rightly begins with the law. It's a command to stand in right position with the law of God, to repent of falling short, so that you might find yourself in the favor of the Lord. Now, the second part is the means by which we are made holy, and that's the promise, that's the gospel, that's the work. Nevertheless, The word of God comes to us in the gospel first by way of a declaration of his expectations and will, and consequently, the reality of our falling short in our sin. And these basic elements are evident in our text today. Go from your country, your kindred, and your house. This is the calling of one man, recognizing uh, the need for Abram to repent and to leave a certain set of conditions and to go and to follow the Lord unto a new place, the calling of one man. This is in sharp contrast with Babel. All of my subpoints this morning, I will seek to draw contrast with the legacy of Ham represented in the city builders. So you're familiar with this text. We've preached on it already, but turn back to Genesis 11.3 and notice, they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. This follows on the heels of chapter or verse 2 in chapter 11. And as the people and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So you can see the contrast already, can you not? We have mankind that seeks to proceed in their efforts and their endeavors by the will of the majority. They beseech each other. They come up with a plan. They seek the will of the majority, as it were, in this democratic process, and they say, they come to a conclusion, come, let us make bricks. Come, let us build a city. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heaven. Let us make a name for ourselves. Come, let us is the theme of the city building impulse. It's the theme of the story of Babel. It's a calling of the people by their own ambition, by their own ability to secure their position in a dangerous world. It's a self-styled salvation attempt. It's a humanistic approach to life's problems. In sharp contrast to that, we have the Lord saying to Abraham, God's word of command in Genesis 12, 1, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Go to a place I will disclose, go to a place I will show you. It's the polar opposite of the will of the majority evident at Babel with this come, let us impulse. The difference is the assumption of authority. On the one hand in Babel, the will of man collectively is considered powerful, authoritative. We are in charge of our own destiny in the ideals of Babel. But on the other hand, when it comes to the covenant calling of Abram, the will of man is subject to the will of God. The will of man is commanded to be obedient to the will of God. The word of God in calling his significant son out from the pagan nations, out from those who would share that city-building impulse, even in Ur and Haran, The will of God calls man out from this by sovereign election to appoint him to a specific task. This is the gospel calling one man out from the corruption of the worldview influences of the society around him. Just a little hint, a little taste test for what's to come. One spiritual reality, one theological truth we see illustrated in this moment is election. I bring this up because the young people this morning were studying election. Election is God's sovereign call, whereby his will alone, he draws man out of his state of depraved sin unto his purposes. Young people learned this morning that God's election, biblically, refers to the calling of nations at times, that pertains to our text, the calling of the church, that pertains to our text, and the calling of individuals, that pertains to our text as well. Abraham was elect, he was a significant son, not because of anything that he could boast in himself, but because God had purposed in his decree to draw him out of the surrounding nations, to repent of his own sin, and to place faith in the God who calls him unto a place he will yet disclose. The calling of one man in sovereign election. The Bible speaks of election in this way, and also you learned this morning, young people, certain characteristics of individual election. It is personal. We see that in our text. God personally called Abraham for his purposes. It is particular. It is specific to him. God has purposes that he will unveil that are unique to Abraham and to his lineage, his family, and those especially who are spiritually associated with this picture of his family line. It is eternal. God's election is an unchanging reality that has consequences and a goal that will take place and is unchangeable and it is just. We have this all implied in the calling of one man under God's word of command in this covenant moment where Abraham is marked by the purposes of God and hears the voice to come out from among them and be separate, so to speak. The calling of one man. He's called from someplace, as we mentioned, a country, a kindred, and a house. Now let's juxtapose this against Babel once again. What what did the men seek to do at Babel? Well, we find in chapter 11, verse 3, as we continue to read, they said, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. They said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower and a tower with its top in the heaven and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So what was a primary motive in the building of this city and this tower, it was fear of dispersion. The people were afraid that if they were uh, separated from the unity of the whole, if they were left on their own, if they were isolated in any way from the majority culture around them, that they would be destroyed. And this terror moved them to consolidate their efforts to build a city. To maximize their collective power to assure for themselves safety against an unknown future. The polar opposite of the calling of Abram. Abram was called from a country, from a kindred, and from a house. In some sense, Abraham was called to separate himself, presumably from family members, who would not share his faith. And so you are called, believer... Jesus himself said that he comes in the gospel sometimes to bring a sword that will divide between households. You will, in the calling of the gospel, have to part ways by certain degrees and in certain instances, even with family members who despise your decision to follow Christ and Christ alone and look to him as the sole way, truth and life and hope for salvation. This was the call of Abram. He had to leave kindred, He had to leave house behind and country. His national identity, his hope in his surroundings, the social circumstances that provided a means of security were all gone to to a large degree as he embarked upon that journey of obedience to the Lord, the exact opposite of the Babel impulse. Fear of dispersion led man to collect their efforts to build a city, presumably a wall and a high tower to protect themselves. But the call of God brought Abraham out from a country, a kindred, a house. Yes, a city, Ur, Haran, come to mind, unto the worship of the one true God. Joshua 24, 2-4 says that not only was Abraham called from familiar surroundings as far as his social circumstance was concerned, his people, his household, and his country, but also it was a calling forth from idolatry, a religious ideals that were blasphemous, paganism of the surrounding nations. It was a call to repentance. Leave country, kindred, house, and all that they value behind. Leave idol worship and paganism and and safety and assurance and the promises of wicked man behind and come and follow me. One people, or whereas the people at the Tower of Babel were marked in their motives by a fear of dispersion, Abraham becomes an example of faith. He's willing to go on a journey all by himself with his family, Well, all by himself relatively speaking, but with his family and his herd separated from the familiar surroundings because he fears the Lord more than he fears loneliness, isolation, or dispersion. God's word of command finally is, comes to this one man from a country, kindred, and house to an undisclosed place again the final portion of verse 1 in chapter 12 he says go from your country your kindred and your father's house to the land that i will show you this again polar opposite to the central planning influence or impulse of babel we want to build for ourselves a city whereas abraham there was an intense demand on faith that was central to his call to build on this a bit, turn with me to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is an inspired commentary on Genesis chapter 12, among other places in Scripture. Verses 9 through 16 are among the comments that the author makes with regard to Abraham. Hebrews 11:9 9. By faith he, Abram, went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, "...living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Abraham was called, according to Hebrews 11, according to Genesis chapter 12, to leave his familiar surroundings, to go to an as of yet undisclosed location, and this required faith. Abraham must trust in the one who commanded him to go commanded him to repent and to separate himself from the world that he knew unto the place that God would reveal, a place of promise. This brings up point number two this morning, major point number two, the covenant calling of Abraham is marked by God's word of command. Secondly, by God's word of promise. This would be primarily verses 2 and 3 of Genesis 12. The Lord goes on to say, "...and I will make of you a great nation." And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is God's word of promise to the one man, to, the, to Abram and his descendants. First, he promises he will make of him a great nation and a great name. This, of course, is easy to contrast with Babel, is it not? What do the people say at Babel? Chapter 11, verse 4. Then they said, Come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So you see, there are two methods pictured here to preserve one's name. One is self-styled efforts of pagan man. One is the humanistic promise of pooling all of our abilities to secure for ourselves a future. This is the way we will preserve our future. This is the way we will make our name great. This is the way we will fight for significance. This is the way we will hold out and cling to hope for the future. We will build a city. We will build a tower. We will. Let us. This is our responsibility and our ability. We will accomplish it. We will do it. Are they successful? No, the very thing that they fear, dispersion and confusion, God wreaks upon them as judgment for their self-styled attempts to make for themselves a great name. However, contrary to conventional wisdom, there is one whose name will be great. And this comes by way of God's word of promise. One man and his family is called out from the rest of the pagan nations, from the rest of those who are faltering and failing and losing the promise and God's covenant word all the way back to Genesis 3.15. And he says, of you, I will make a great nation. He says, I will bless you and make your name great. The difference in the imagination of man and the decree of God for the path to greatness is illustrated in our text here. Abraham's name meant exalted father, Abram, In fact, literally meant exalted father. Yet here he is, 75 years old. We've learned in chapter 1130 that his wife is barren, meaning, of course, he has no children to boast. He is commanded to leave his country, his kindred and house and to trust God that God will fulfill his promises by some mysterious supernatural means that he has yet to reveal in full. And Abraham, by the grace of God, led by his spirit, takes that first step on that long journey, which will lay out for him a whole life, a lifestyle of wandering in some sense, to head toward that city whose designer and builder is God. Does Abram become an exalted father? Yes, he does. The name Abraham is one of the most famous names in all of history. When the history books are written and forgotten and written and forgotten over the centuries, even centuries to come, millennia to come, there will remain the name of Abram, Abraham. Why? Because God fulfilled his promise to him to make of him a great name and a great nation. Abraham from the line of Seth in the legacy of the elect line was a significant son. Even Jesus Christ is introduced in Matthew 1, as we've noted, as the son of Abraham, the son of David, because of God's purposes through this man. However, God does it a different way than mankind assumes in his sin. Abraham is not exalted because of his great virtue in and of himself. In fact, the record will make that very clear as we continue to read his story and and learn of his journey, which had its ups and downs to be sure in future texts and future chapters of the scripture. Abraham is great because God set his mercy and favor and grace upon him. And through him prophesied of one to come and pictured one to come. And he is, in fact, the father of the faith in many ways because of God's word of promise alone. Secondly, under God's word of promise, there is a definitive relationship between now all of humanity and Abram. Abraham, Listen, I will make of you a great nation, and he says, I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. But notice verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Now, we have noted that the rest of the Bible primarily focuses upon the elect line and its implications, God's plan of salvation, which focuses on Abraham and his legacy moving forward. However, at this redemptive watershed moment in the history of God's covenant with man, we see something very significant. Depending on your relationship with Abraham, you, everyone who's ever been born, everyone who ever will be born are either blessed or cursed. If you do not identify with the calling of Abraham, with God's gospel good news to Abraham, with God's purposes accomplished through Abraham, with the prophecies that were fulfilled by the significant son to come through the line of Abraham, if you do not identify with those, you are cursed. But if you find in Abraham's lineage a family relationship, if you are a grafted-in son and daughter of Abraham, as it were, if you find yourself the son uh, and daughter of God, as it were, because of Jesus' work through the lineage of Abraham, then you are blessed beyond measure and beyond compare. This watershed moment in the history of redemption uh, strikes such a prominent contrast to the feeble attempts, the vain ambitions of Babel, I hardly need to mention it. However, when God comes down, To Babel in chapter 11, verse 5, he says the following, "...the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built." Now we see in contrast to Abraham that all of humanity could be divided into two categories, the children of man and the children of Abraham. Which would you rather be? The children of man, the ones who find their identity in their humanity independent of redemption, They are enemies of Abraham, they are enemies of God. Now the children of Abraham are those who are grafted into God's redemptive purposes as revealed through his elect line of significant sons. Hope lies with Abraham. You remember the prophecy of Noah to his son Shem and his lineage? That within the tents of Shem is to be found safety, habitation, and a place of reconciliation with the favor of God. Abraham in the line of Shem provided hope to the coastlands, the distant peoples, distant not just by geography, but distant even by historical time. And so we, coastland peoples, so many centuries removed, when we confess our sins and place faith in the one significant son in the lineage of Abraham who satisfied everything that Abraham's call prefigured, namely Jesus Christ, when we place faith in him, we find ourselves friends as it were with Abraham. We find ourselves, as it were, within, welcome in to the tents of Shem, included in the covenant promises. And that calling of Abraham, which is marked by a word of command, comes to us and the Holy Spirit changes our heart. And then we hear God's word of promise. You go, turn from your sin, turn to Christ, the significant son who has come in this same lineage. And as you do so, you will find yourself in good standing with the Lord. You will find yourself in the family of God, in the lineage of the favored. You will find yourself among the elect. Thus, Abraham pictures this definitive relationship. All hope is mediated through one significant son, and all judgment is mediated through one significant son. This is the picture of Abraham's role. I will bless those who bless you, and those who dishonor you, I will curse All hope and all judgment is mediated through one significant son. Ultimately, this is not Abraham, but Abraham pictures who the ultimate significant son is. That is Jesus Christ. This is a picture of mediation through one man. There is one mediator between God and man. It is the significant son in the line of Shem and the line of Abraham to come, Jesus Christ. Ultimately, this picture here foretells it foreshadows the picture of Christ to come. All who are in right relationship with Jesus will receive the blessings promised to Abraham. All who will remain outside the camp, as it were, who are enemies of him will be cursed. God's word of promise. Great name, great nation, definitive relationship, and then families are blessed. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. Final phrase in verse three. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is in sharp contrast again to Babel. Chapter 11, verse 6, the Lord said, Behold, there are one people and they have one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they purpose to do or propose to do will now be impossible for them. So what does the Lord do by way of consequence for their sin? He confuses them. He separates them. He disperses them. So here we have... Hope for the families of earth invested in the covenant promises to Abraham. And on the other hand, by contrast, we have in the picture of Babel, hope invested in a monolithic cultural endeavor. A progressive cultural pooling of resources together for the best possible promise of human flourishing. This yet remains today. There is hope that man tries to glean from pooling all our efforts together, and if you listen carefully with ear of discernment to the news, to collective projects that the scientific, unredeemed scientific enterprise pursues, if you listen to the sociologists and the political pundits of our day, if you listen to the policy provo- proposals that are put forth by global ruling bodies and by international consortiums, by the Council of Foreign Relations, by the United Nations, by the next administration, I could almost care less which political party it is, you will hear shades of the promise of Babel. You will hear yet today that man still has this impulse to invest his hope in monolithic, progressive culture, pooling our best efforts together uh, so that we can possibly save uh, the human experience and preserve for ourselves the best possible future. I listened to even a uh, debate this week where a prominent American intellectual, Brett Weinstein, was arguing that there was some—he's he's an unbeliever—he said there, he, in his judgment, there was some evolutionary utility to religion. After all, it was a useful metaphor to save us. But now, man is so far advanced in our problems and our challenges and in our technology that we have outgrown religion, quote unquote. Now we must come together and reach a consensus that will save us from the fear of dispersion and self-destruction and foremost in his mind is a threat of nuclear war. You know, he said, if the Bible really had a transcendent view of man, then it would have said in its wisdom, do not enrich uranium. And that just struck me as foolish. Why? Because we've been reading from the account of earliest man. And there was a time when arguably, as far as I can tell, 25, This is a little trick question I asked my kids this week, of the world's population was eliminated by one violent act of breaking God's law. Kids, a little pop quiz for you. Do you know what that was? When in history was 25% of the world's population destroyed by breaking God's law, thou shalt not kill? The flood? The flood? Uh, Abel, that's correct. The flood is, a, is a, arguably, uh, Judah's example is an even better one. But that was God's hand directly. Um, and, but over here I heard Abel, the killing of Abel. That's correct. So if we have Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, imagine how vulnerable the human population was. One act of murderous violence against one person could eliminate 25% of the world's population. Yet God's word was sufficient. He had decreed even then, implicitly through his law, thou shalt not kill. Why? Because man was made in the image of God. So with this man, blind in his sin, fails to realize is that the word of God is absolutely sufficient. And there is, according to the word of God, it proves to us, from Genesis 11 into 12, no vested hope in the collective progressive uh, you know, techni- technology or hope of mankind in the future that will cause us, or that will give us the ability to transcend our tendency to, towards self-destruction. There is no such thing. All the families of the world are blessed in and through Abram and only in and through him. Hope is invested when a person is in the right frame of mind in the gospel itself. In Abraham and in Christ is hope. Galatians 3.16 speaks to union with Christ. It uh, speaks to this concept of in Abraham. When God says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We find that fulfilled in Galatians 3.16, where the lineage of Abraham is identified with the Messiah. Thus, uh, the point that Paul makes there is that the promises to Abraham's offspring presuppose the coming Messiah, so in the fullness of Revelation, it could be said as follows, in Christ, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's word of command, God's word of promise. Final point this morning, appointed pilgrimage. Moving more quickly, picking up on this later in a future message likely as well. This is verses 4 through 9. Covenant calling of Abraham is marked by God's word of command God's word of promise and an appointed pilgrimage, a journey. So Abraham went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Here we have faith and obedience illustrated in Abraham's action upon God's revelation. Abraham illustrates this relationship that becomes thematic for the entire book of Romans. If you look at the beginning of Paul's epistle to the Romans and the end we see that his purpose in writing is that the obedience of the faith may be exhibited among the nations. Abraham exhibited as much on his appointed pilgrimage. This is in sharp contrast to Babel. Hope in Babel and the program there was invested in brick and mortar. Come, let us build bricks. Let us bake them thoroughly and burn them thoroughly. We want to make a permanent edifice and habitation impregnable wall, a tower to reach heaven. Uh, We want to twist heaven's arm, as it were, by these means. But for Abraham, his faith was in something else. He was willing to herd his cattle and his livestock across the wilderness and live in tents and put the brick and mortar of the established societies behind him. Again, as Hebrews 11, 9 through 16 says, why? Because he was looking forward to a city whose designer and builder was God. At first, he had no idea where that place was, and he never really settled down in this life. Nevertheless, this man of great faith followed the appointed pilgrimage that God had for him, and by way of divine escort, set his face like flint to the promised land. The covenant calling of Abraham was marked by this obedience and faith. This response to the gospel that the Spirit worked within him in this appointed pilgrimage. Secondly, and more on this in the future, it was marked by divine appearance. Notice in verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now this is certainly a highlightable verse, is it not? Genesis 12 verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram. What a significant moment. Moments like these in the Old Testament have become known as theophanies in theology, which is a revelation of God or an appearance of God in some form that can be tangibly experienced or witnessed, physically seen in many cases by the individual. Now, these theophanies are something like a pre-incarnate visitation of the second person of the Trinity. This is something of a foreshadowing of God in flesh, God coming and revealing himself in tangible ways to his servants of old. Foretelling a time when God in flesh appearing, Emmanuel God with us, where God the Son, Jesus Christ, would set aside, or better said, veil, for a time, his pre-incarnate glory to take on flesh and to reveal himself, and to reveal in so doing the Father, a God in flesh, to us appearing, granting to us the message of salvation and satisfying all of the terms and conditions of the covenant calling that was reiterated to Abraham, was breathed to Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3.15, which was foretold by the prophets of old and then revealed at that moment of incarnation. That moment of incarnation was preceded by appearances to Abram and others in the Old Testament. More on that later. But this appointed pilgrimage was marked by not only Abraham's faith and obedience, but by divine appearances. Now notice the contrast to Babel. The Lord came down in Babel. He appeared, so to speak, in the story, does he not? He says, behold, or the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built, 11.5. He says, verse seven, come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them. The message here is the Lord will come. But depending on your association with Abram, indeed with the son of Abraham Christ, he will either come in judgment or he will come revealing himself in salvation. Which will it be? Will you be uh, in the lineage of Abram and see Jesus Christ revealed in Scripture, the incarnate Son as holding out hope of salvation, or will you invest your hope in what man can venture in his ambitions, his vain attempts to supply? And then, yes, the Lord will come. He will come down, but it will be a coming of judgment, not one of salvation. This is the appointed pilgrimage. And the final point this morning is altar worship. As Abraham proceeds along his journey in Genesis 12, we see him building something. Verse 7, we've seen him build an altar. Then the Lord appeared to Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. Verse 8, from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west, Ai on the east. And there again, says, there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed on, still going toward Negev, toward the Negev. So here again, what did the people of Babel build, young people? What was the building project? What did they build at Babel? A tower. What did Abraham build? An altar, that's correct. Remember our two legacies? The one is the legacy of the city builders, building a tower in a city, trying to make a name for themselves. The other is the legacy of the significant sons. What do significant sons build? They don't build towers, they don't build cities of man. They build altars. What is an altar? An altar is a place of remembrance and proclamation. It's a similar concept that we adhere to here at the Lord's Supper. At the Lord's table, we are commanded At this altar, as it were, to remember and proclaim something that God has done. This altar provides an occasion to look upon the true source of hope and help. It was the word of God that came by way of command, and then promise, and then appointed pilgrimage, and then appearance by theophany in the wilderness. And at that location is where Abraham built that altar, so he and his children might remember and proclaim the mighty works of God. That altar did not speak to Abraham's great ability to fashion a tower or a city or a wall, no. It spoke to the great ability of the Lord who, in spite of his transcendence, condescends to us and makes himself known in his appearing even sending his son to take on flesh, to become a man, to die in our place for our sins. That's what the altar of the Lord's table points to, the work of the Lord, establishing in his name a high tower where the righteous can run to and are safe. And that tower is our Lord Jesus Christ. That tower is by the design and the execution and the accomplishment of our sovereign God alone, nothing that these two sinful, depraved hands could build. This is the message of the altars that Abraham built. He built them to remember and proclaim the redemptive acts of the almighty God in the lives of unworthy sinners. And what did he do? And what did those who followed in his faithful footsteps do at that altar? They worshiped the Lord. They did not worship the work of their own hands. They did not worship creation. They worshiped Yahweh. Abraham called on the name of the Lord. He began to beseech him, to pray him, to intercede on behalf, to even serve in some ways in a priestly role to, as you recall, in later accountings, to stand in the gap between those who would otherwise, like Lot, be destroyed in the burning of the cities and judgment on the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. Where will you pitch your tent? Where will you pitch, pitch your tent? Will you pitch your tent in Babel? After all, Babel will give you a mansion. Babel will give you the promise of riches. The Babel will give you man's best attempts at security. Babel will give you all that, but then Babel will take it away. Better said, the Lord will come in judgment. Like Babel, like the cities on the plains, when the fires of God's coming uh, in judgment appear on, on that day, woe to those who find the refuge, hope, and security in the city of man. Are you willing to come out from the kindred and the house and the land of the majority culture around us? Are you willing to come out and to be a stranger, a sojourner, a pilgrim in this land, a peculiar people to show forth the praises of your Lord? Even though you don't know exactly what that means for your life, it requires faith and obedience, but you do have this. You have the assurance of God's promise of eternal rest and glory. And that mansion that is prepared for those who place their faith in Christ is built and fashioned by the hands of Christ our Lord, not by the cheap and vain attempts of some humanistic endeavor on this side of glory. More than this, you will have the promise of a new heaven and new earth, the reinstitution of perfect uh, communion, unadulterated by sin, where you can have that restored relationship with the Lord Most High. And all of these things are assured and promised to us in the gospel. This is the city of God. Abraham looked to the city whose designer and builder was the Lord, and the call is for us to do the same. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the message of your holy scriptures. We thank you for the testimony of the saints who've gone before. We thank you most of all for the significant son in the lineage of Abraham, Seth and Shem, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior who made all these promises ultimately possible in his own flesh and blood crucified on Calvary, who sealed his work of utter defeat of sin the grave and Satan in his resurrection, and who exercises in his session, even now, absolute rule and authority over all his enemies as he subdues them through the course of history one by one. Yes, even us as we repent and believe, placing us in his good graces. Thank you, Lord, for these promises. May we look to you May we not be deceived by the appeal of Babel in our day, but may we be content to be a sojourner to some degree in this life because we have the promise of eternal glory secured in Christ's own resurrection to look forward to. We also pray that for any in the hearing of today's proclamation, if they yet remain in their sins, that they would repent, come out from their house and their kindred and their land and follow Christ even taking up their cross and following him, knowing that he has ultimately paid for their sins through his shed blood on Calvary. Thank you, Lord, for this hope. Thank you for this encouragement. May we stand strong, be thoroughly equipped this week for your call in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.